0: Welcome back. I'm Ridhala Nathamani, one of your hosts of Curbside Consults. In this episode, we'll be looking at culinary medicine, a new tool used to combat the rising incidence of chronic disease in this country. My guests today are passionate about the field. Dr. Jacqueline Albin, internal medicine and pediatrics trained physician and registered dietitian Millette Seiler, both at the University of Texas at Southwestern, are a duo that believe passionately in the promise of culinary medicine, Diabetes, heart failure, and high blood pressure are increasingly common diagnoses for which dietary changes are often prescribed, but with little clear guidance on what constitutes healthy eating. I'd like to turn it over here to Dr. Albin and Millette to introduce themselves. Welcome.
1: Thanks for having us. We're excited to be here, and I come to you from Dallas, Texas, as a primary care physician, educator, and believer that food has a lot of ability to heal us.
2: Hello, my name is Millette Seiler. I am a registered dietitian and a culinary dietitian. It's my specialty. I consider myself a forthright foodie. I love food and its role in medicine, and I love helping fellow clinicians connect with that love as well and how that fits within clinical practice.
0: So my first question for you both It's my understanding that culinary medicine is a newer field. And I expect that a lot of our listeners haven't actually heard about what culinary medicine is. Could you give us a little bit of an idea of what need culinary medicine addresses
2: in current medical education and training? Sure. So culinary medicine is a field of study exploring the links between the food we eat and our health. It's a true blend of nutrition science, traditional medical and clinical knowledge with the culinary arts. Our goal is to give our learners, whoever they may be, the tools they need to improve their relationship with food. And if they're a clinician, we want them to be able to provide education and improve competency in their ability to provide their best care for their patients.
1: Absolutely. Well, I think fundamentally culinary medicine is very practical. It's the reality that when we talk to people about grams of carbohydrate or nutrition labels, that only gets us so far because the people that we're caring for and even our friends and family, they want to talk about food, about what's on their plates, about what brings joy and culture to life. And so culinary medicine takes that joy of food that is universal and brings the evidence base about the role food plays in health in an interprofessional expertise model to the table. And we intersect that in bringing food as medicine to individuals, and then really our entire communities.
0: How does one become a culinary medicine practitioner? Could you tell us a little bit about how you guys got
2: started? So it really kind of starts for most people way before you even begin your professional life. I grew up in a uh, rural environment and I was food insecure. We lived off the land for a great degree. My mother, out of necessity, learned to can, to preserve food. We had a large garden, and it filled some of the gap, but not enough. And so when I moved away from, from home and moved into a more urban environment, I developed some unhealthy habits that really didn't serve me. And watching my family, there was a lot of cardiovascular disease, a lot of type 2 diabetes, and I felt that that was really becoming my destiny, and I really was fighting against that. I looked online for some solutions and everything that seemed to make sense and resonate with me had this word "dietitian" that I had never heard before, but the advice that I took from anything associated with that word seemed to make sense. So I was a stay-at-home mom and I wanted to have a professional life. I started telling people I'm going to be a dietitian. So I ended up at a university, Texas Christian University in Fort Worth, and was very, very fortunate. Serendipity led me to a program that was very culinary centric, but also was the first licensee of the health meets food culinary medicine curriculum that originated out of Tulane University with Dr. Tim Harlan and chef Leah Saris, who also happened to be a chef and an internist. And Leah Saris is a registered dietitian. So that became the framework for my entire career. Well, that's a very
0: personal story. And thank you so much for sharing you bring up a really interesting point about food insecurity and how that sort of shaped your journey. Can you talk a little bit about what those challenges are when you're facing food insecurity around healthy eating?
2: Well, one of the that, that is a barrier, a true barrier with folks that are from the standard American diet to what we really want people to do is to get into the kitchens and cook with their friends, with their families, is the belief that healthy cooking is expensive. And we want to be really candid and say that yes, it absolutely can be, especially without the knowledge base to go along with it. It can be difficult. It's a skill set that we've really moved away from as a nation. So first and foremost, I always tell my learners that yes, this is really difficult work. This is work, but it's definitely worth it. So when we're looking at food insecurity, you have somebody who's on the margins, they're struggling in our communities. We know that a family that identifies as food insecure are spending 40 to 50% more per meal than a family who isn't food insecure. So it's expensive to be facing these challenges. They have, it's more difficult to procure food. And when they can find nutritious food, it's more expensive for them, usually. So uh, giving them the tools that they need in a way that preserves their dignity is a core part of our mission with culinary medicine.
0: So you mentioned, Millette, that your mom acquired the skills to can and preserve foods and there was no internet back then. And now in this digital age where you could find a YouTube video on just about anything you're looking for, why do you think it is that our current generation lacks the skills around proper dietary preparation, food preparation, and you know, feeding yourself?
2: It's an interesting conundrum, right? Never before have we had more exposure to more ideas so readily. They're very accessible. It's not for the elite who can afford to go to university or get tutelage. It's pretty incredible, right? But I think that that's actually contributing to the problem. There are so many voices. There are so many places pulling you this way and that. If you are going to be a social media star and you went to a class saying, let's be a social media star the number one piece of advice that you're told is find a way to distinguish yourself, find your niche. And a lot of times that becomes taking a small fraction of nutrition science in our neck of the woods when we're talking about nutrition and culinary knowledge and making that your brand. And there's a lot of misinformation that can come out of that. And then what you have is a lot of different voices pulling you in different ways, like this is the right way to go, this is the wrong way to go and a lot of the emphasis tends to be on the negative. So yes, there is a great deal of knowledge, but there isn't a lot of context about what makes sense for me. And there's a lot of really wonderful knowledge, but you're like, do I have the canning tools? Do I have the resources to emulate that? So we actually capitalize on social media trends. My favorite thing to do is Look at Instagram, look at what's trending on TikTok and like, how can we apply that in the teaching kitchen? Because that's what people are interested in, but then always overlay the clinical and nutrition science context to bring it back to reality and put it within its proper place. Because when you look at the context of nutrition science, it is quite broad. In very few cases, is it very, very narrow and prescriptive. It's about patterns of eating, for example. There aren't superfoods. There isn't one miracle pattern of eating or diet that's going to make or break you. Some people will despair at that. We actually love that because it really is inclusive to a lot of different cultures. If you have food preferences or allergies, there's a lot of room at our table. There is a lack of awareness of how
1: vital the quality of our food is to our health, which is really a newer understanding scientifically then it was easy for people to say, I don't have time for that. I don't value that. And so bringing back the value around the actual process of knowing where our food comes from, preparing it mindfully and in community, the joy of making food with other people is something that I think has been taken from us and how it links back to our health. That's that's where we're going now.
0: That's a great point, Dr. Albin. I want to come back and explore that a little bit more. What is the role of nutrition science in Medicine as practiced by physicians. I mean, in my experience, when I have a question about, or a patient who needs more education around their diet, besides some basic information, I'm really looking to my dietitian colleagues to be able to fill in those gaps. So, what role should a physician be playing in this discussion around food?
1: Great question. And I think that you're actually unique in turning to registered dietitian nutritionist right away when you feel your own lack of knowledge or lack of time and the many reasons why physicians don't talk about nutrition. And that is absolutely not common. We actually have studied in our own culinary medicine elective how many medical students even know what a dietitian does at the beginning versus the end of our course is one of our most exciting outcomes is they understand how to collaborate with interprofessionals. But physicians need to be involved in this for a few reasons. Number one, especially those of us who have long-term relationships with our patients, they are looking to us to guide and endorse their care. And I have many patients that I've cared for eight, nine years now. And they don't even take advice from a highly skilled subspecialist without weighing my thoughts on the matter because they trust me. And I think that is a huge aspect of the way we deliver care to patients. And really, the pandemic has shown us how much trust matters. So sometimes the role of a physician is simply to say, food matters to your health. And here are the health conditions that we could really make improvements if we'd make some dietary changes. And really what I think everyone needs to have is this foundational level of knowledge. I like to call it the do no harm foundation, which means don't say hurtful things that are not supportive, culturally sensitive, that might cause disordered eating in your patients. But then there's another level of clinical innovation that's emerging all over the United States because We are now able to prescribe food increasingly. This is a CMS priority, and many states are actually providing Medicaid coverage for things like fruit and vegetable Rx, medically tailored meals. Physicians have to have the knowledge to know how to prescribe food and when and for how long. And it's definitely an emerging field and a lot of research to be done which is exciting, but I think we have to be part of guiding health system innovations in this space.
0: So tell me how you carry out this mission. What is it that medical students need to know to be able to effectively, say, prescribe a diet? We are really
1: addressing that right now. A commitment that was made after the White House Nutrition Conference in the fall to answer the question, what role should this play in our education? What is the how? And what are the competencies that we expect? So that is something that is vital to define. And there is already quite a lot of literature over the last two decades saying, here's what we ought to be teaching. Nutrition plays a role in almost every health condition. And it's literally a topic that is relevant to every single human being because we all have to eat. So you can start talking about it in spaces that already exist. You look at cardiology block in medical school. There's clearly application there. You look at disease-oriented lectures around conditions like fatty liver disease or IBS. There are places that we can begin to put evidence-based nutrition into those conversations. And then we have to sort of think about how do we prepare our learners to have conversations with patients? And I think we're not equipping learners to do that right now.
0: So obviously, this isn't something that was part of your education. Given as it's a relatively newcomer in the scene, how did you go from you know graduating med residency, doing your chief year, and then starting as a primary care physician to now being a culinary medicine practitioner?
1: So it was personal for me too. Similar to Millette's story, my family always valued food and growing it and knowing where it came from. My grandparents were farmers. And then I went on with my journey of education the way many of us do, where we aren't really thinking about what's missing when we're in the midst of it, when we're in the thick of the learning. And I had never realized that we weren't getting any education around nutrition until my husband, during my early residency, was diagnosed with celiac disease. And he had been sick for a long time. He gets diagnosed. We walk out of the medical office and realize... I don't know what to do. And they didn't give us any resources. And this is 12, 13 years ago when it wasn't quite as easy to find gluten-free food. And so I began to dive into, well, how does one become gluten-free? And then I started to come across the role that diet plays in almost every health condition and frankly became embarrassed and frustrated that I'm training to be a pediatrician and an internist. If anyone should know how to do this, it should be me. So that was the beginning for me. I didn't expect that to become part of my career. I was studying this on my own for a long time. And then fast forward to early facultyhood, where I joined the team here at UT Southwestern to help build out the MedPete's residency program. And I'm sitting in a faculty meeting after they had redone part of the medical school curricular approach, and they were integrating a wellness curriculum into a clerkship. And they had a week focused on sleep and a week focused on exercise, and they wanted a nutrition week. And so literally one of my colleagues looked at me and said, hey, Jacqueline, you bring healthy lunch to work every day. What do you think about teaching nutrition week? And we laugh about that now because it literally was my credential at the time. And it's a reflection of the workforce problem that we have right now around Physicians that understand and value this. It's getting better. And that's part of my goal. Part of my journey is to equip the next generation so that it's not hard to find people who can talk about this. So I began to learn from those around me to study the literature. I was inspired by the work in the literature of people like Dr. David Eisenberg and Dr. Tim Harlan. I ended up getting trained in culinary medicine in New Orleans at the Gold Ring Center for Culinary Medicine and then subsequently certified in culinary medicine. American College of Lifestyle Medicine has been a big part of my training as well, thinking holistically about how our health behaviors affect outcomes and getting board certified in lifestyle medicine.
0: It strikes me as you say that, that hospital food is pretty terrible. I mean, whether you're eating it as a physician, a resident, they're on overnight call or as a patient, I don't think there's one person in the hospital who's happy with the food. So even though it's such a ubiquitous part of our life, we're really not paying that much attention to it, are we? No, and it sends a
1: message doesn't it it says this doesn't matter enough that we're even going to bother to feed you well while you're in the hospital and actually that's one of the low-hanging fruit that i tend to suggest to people who are just getting started is if you're a resident or a fellow or especially if you're a gme leader what are you feeding your trainees what do you have at noon conference what do you have at morning report can you make subtle shifts that don't always have to be super expensive, that say, hey, we're going to offer water and coffee and tea and maybe not soda every day. I think it's key to point out here that the literature shows consistently that the personal behaviors of physicians drive their counseling. And that's true whether we're talking about smoking or exercise or nutrition. And if we don't believe that this matters enough to do it for our own lives, then of course, we're not going to really authentically bring it to our patient care.
0: So let's switch up here and talk a little bit about the concept of teaching kitchens, which is a core component of culinary medicine education. And I have a lot of questions really about how you teach culinary medicine, but especially around the teaching kitchen, who are you inviting in and what are the goals of the sessions? What sorts of information do you cover?
1: So you might be wondering, what does an actual teaching kitchen experience feel like? And it's not exactly the same anywhere, but you'll feel the same vibes wherever you are when you go into a space to prepare food with others. And if we talk about one of our health professional classes that we're teaching here on campus, and we're using our School of Health Professions clinical nutrition lab. So this is where our dietetic students get some of their food science training and they generously share that space with us. So we may bring in a cohort of family medicine residents and we're gonna talk about diabetes. And we're making recipes that are friendly for people who are watching their blood sugar. And we're also getting the message to them that this is not special food for people with diabetes. This is delicious, nourishing food for everyone. And that people who have a family member with diabetes don't have to eat differently. There's a lot of interprofessional learning when we have dietetic students coming to share their expertise with the medical students. And then afterwards, the best part, everyone gets to eat all the things that they made, sampling what the other teams made as well. And when they present what they made, Millette is actually teaching them medical nutrition therapy. She's driving home. Why is this a good dish for a patient who has high blood pressure? Why does this dish work well for someone who has to work long hours and how does it save them time and improve the diet quality? And then we end the evening or afternoon in many cases talking about a few relevant articles? What's the literature on the topic at a high level? How do you apply this to patient care in the exam room or in creative models? And the best part about it is everyone enjoys these experiences so much, they want to then take it to the community through service learning, where it's both education for the community and also additional layers of experience for our trainees. We can encourage the same nourishing dietary pattern that simplifies cooking, simplifies life. So the students come in or residents in this case, and they're going to learn a culinary skill from Millette, who has a lot of culinary training. And this is why you see culinary dietitians and chefs being leads in this model, because they're teaching a practical skill. How do you cut an onion efficiently? How do you roast vegetables? How do you cook seafood? What are the basics that give someone the self-efficacy to take this back to their own space and make it again? And then they're going to be in teams and each team, we usually have four to five teams per class, is going to make one to two recipes, sometimes three if they're brief. And we'll have multiple different dishes at the end of about an hour of cooking during that time.
0: Well, so that's what I want to know. If you've learned to chop an onion in the teaching kitchen, how does that translate to the exam room? What can you practically then take away from that experience to help a patient who might be struggling with diabetes and doesn't know where to start.
1: I think we forget that patients want something really practical from us. They don't want us to give them grams of carbohydrates. They want to know what to make for dinner tonight. And when you have gotten yourself into the kitchen, you've realized that it's not that hard and that it doesn't have to be expensive because we're using recipes that are less than $1.25 to $1.50 per serving then you can take that recipe literally tomorrow to clinic and say, hey, I made this sweet potato veggie chili and it was so good and I made it in bulk. So now I have extra for the week. How about you give it a try to see if this is a better option than the fast food drive-through line that you're going to for lunch every day. So it's about taking those practical skills. Just like if I find a solution to getting exercise into my life, I'm more likely to share that with my patients. It's the personal experience informs the professional. And it's not just about what we're doing in the exam room. It's also about, hey, what are the ways that we can transform models of clinical care beyond the current structure that isn't giving people the level of detail and support that they need to be successful? And I think that's really the next frontier
2: here. Teaching Kitchen is an application that works for everyone. Our learners cover a pretty wide base. We divide it into two buckets, to use that term. We have our community learners or our layperson learners, and then we have our professional learners or our medical learners. But then we also do a lot of research out in the community. What do these applications look like when they are added onto um, traditional clinical care for type 2 diabetes, for example, or living kidney donors? for a variety of populations, including food pantry recipients. Jacqueline mentions acknowledging our community experts. And our students, after our first cohort, were volunteering at food pantries and talking to the workers and leaders in these food pantries and said, you know, people are leaving food on the table. And the leaders at the food bank who really understand their communities, understand the people, And what they need, they know they desperately need this food. And they say they're not taking it because they don't know how to prepare it. And they don't think that their families will accept it. So do you feel like this is something a teaching kitchen could fix? So we brought our teaching kitchen initiatives to food pantry recipients and said, um, how can we help? How can we partner with the food pantry? Your expertise, you understand how your folks eat. What resources can we bring to you? Then we also partner with, as we've discussed extensively, our medical learners. We have an elective for our first-year medical students and uh, some of our other professional students, our graduate students that are served at the School of Health Professions at the University of Texas Southwestern. And then we also have a wonderful relationship with the Family Medicine Residency Program. And then all of those Doctors get a really hearty dose. They have four classes per year with us. And then we have some other fellowships that also work with us. The most important skill that someone working in a teaching kitchen can have is the ability to create a safe space for learners. And I think that when we're talking about cultural humility, understanding that there's a lot of blame and shame. And you know, I work in oncology, and I know that there's a lot of misinformation um, that surrounds that but the ability to create a space in the teaching kitchen where people feel safe sharing their stories. We're talking about our culture. Our plates are our stories. The food that we eat tells about our history, our preferences, the things that have value to us are reflected on our plates. So my job in the teaching kitchen as finding a way to have our learners feel safe, to share their stories, because then they're most open to learn. We learn best through creation, not consumption. The beauty of culinary medicine is you get both. You get to create and then consume, but we do it in a way that is safe.
1: And then the next angle of our service line is actually one-on-one coaching consults. And We just began that in December and have over 70 people waiting to get scheduled for their first appointment. It's exploded because people want this type of support. And they come into our practice in person and spend a little bit of time with me. And then Millette really takes them into the details of specific SMART goals they can
2: work toward to improve their personal health goals. And we also try to take those e-consults from a framework of food access and food equity issues. So if the patient has identified as food insecure, we want to connect them with resources in their zip code as well. And yeah, we do SMART goals, which is a pretty traditional MNT application. So we do behavior coaching and then goal setting. But I will tell you that these patients are highly motivated. A common misconception that we get is, people don't want to change, they don't want to do this, not these patients. These are folks who come in, they're highly motivated, they're interested, they want to learn. So it's very healing as a clinician to have somebody who is so ready to hear what you have to say. So don't make up your patients' minds for them before they come in. We want to work with community kitchen spaces whether that be at community centers, religious centers, um, or food pantries. And so we are bringing folks in, imagine this, it's a teaching kitchen encounter where they can have a traditional clinical experience that's fully reimbursable by their insurance. They're meeting with a culinary dietitian who they're having a hands-on experiential, like a dinner conversation, but then they're also getting their clinical needs met at the same time. We aren't the first to do work in this space. Some of our other Teaching Kitchen Collaborative members and other folks throughout the nation have been working on this spectrum Health. Dr. Christy Arts has done some fantastic work with her team in this space. MedStar is doing some great work in this space and has some very encouraging numbers that not only is the right thing to do, but it's also the financially feasible thing to do. It's saving money, and definitely keeping the lights on for folks. And that's key, right? It has to be sustainable. And
1: doing teaching kitchen work clinically is sustainable in both a fee-for-service model and a value-based model because people get better. And more broadly than even just the interventions that we've been describing with teaching kitchens, food is medicine consistently shows better health and lower access and utilization of unnecessary health services, particularly ER visits and hospitalization, they go down when we provide people nutritionally tailored food.
0: Well, that wraps up this episode of Curbside Consults. I'd like to thank Dr. Jacqueline Alvin and Millette Seiler for joining us today to discuss culinary medicine and nutrition science in medical education. We are always looking for ways to improve our podcast and educational materials, So if you have any comments or suggestions, please leave us a review on iTunes or email us at resident360 at NEJM.org. We would also like to form a focus group to get more formal feedback. So if you're interested in participating, please email resident360 at NEJM.org. Our production team at NEJM Resident 360 includes Karen Buckley, Lynn Winston-Perry, Kyle Simmons, Mike Thomases, Tim Vining, Scott Williams, and Kathy Stern. Also, a special thanks to our NEJM Education Editor, Dr. Opie Hamnick. Curbside Consult is brought to you by NEJM Resident 360, a product of the NEJM Group.